0: Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Second Samuel 23 uh, verses 13 through 17. This can be found on page 276 in the, uh, the Black Pew Bibles sitting in front of you. Second Samuel 23: 13 through 17. And three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam. When a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim, David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines And drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their own lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. This is the word of the Lord.
1: It's been about uh, 25 years now since I heard Tim Keller do a sermon on this very text that made a huge imprint on me. I'm riffing off of that sermon this morning. If you listen to it, you might hear some familiarity, so credit where credit is due. Um, I will say that some of you saw on social media yesterday, uh, Tim's wife Kathy report that uh, rest, requesting prayers as he finished a round of his chemo. I was just texting with Tim's son, Michael, who was in my uh, pastor's cohort. Uh, we really need to pray for Tim Keller this week. Uh, he is uh, uh, this last round of chemo has left him uh, emaciated with his cancer treatment. So, uh, and I think he's a very important person to our denomination and to our world. So, we would like for the Lord to spare him if he's able to do as much. Um, however, I wonder if any of you are familiar with the old Aesop's fable called "The Town Mouse and the Country Mouse." You know the story. It's really charming. There's this town mouse who goes out to visit his country cousin who lives out in the sticks. And while he's there, the town mouse is bragging to the country mouse about how great life is in the city. Why in the world, he says to his cousin, would you want to live in the squalor and simplicity when there's so much better accommodations and food in the big city? So the country mouse decides he's going to go with him, take him up on his offer. But while they're there trying to eat, suddenly a cat shows up and scurries them away, terrifying them. They have to scramble back down to their little tiny mouse hole. Well, while they get there together, suddenly the truth comes out. The town mouse says, actually, life around that cat is awfully dangerous, even to the point of taking the life of his own mother and father some months prior. His attacks are terrifying, and everybody's got to be vigilant against him. Well, the country mouse looks at him and says, thanks for the tour, and turns around and goes back to his own home because, as one pastor put it, he'd rather gnaw at a bean than be gnawed at by continual fear. Don't you love those little stories? They're so simple. They come these little morality tales that sort of, they've interestingly been around since before the time of Jesus. And all you do is you tell a quaint little story and the moral is pretty obvious. Life in the big city ain't always what it's crapped up to be. Or don't ever underestimate your opponent if you're doing the story of the tortoise and the hare. In other words, it's really easy to interpret the story and apply it to your life. But the Bible doesn't always work that way, does it? When you read these stories in the Bible, you might want for them to work out like morality tales, but they don't always fit. You could say, well, you know, here's King David. What a great example of how to live a life as someone who is someone after God's own heart. But of course, you get to the Bathsheba thing that doesn't quite fit. So you say, well, now the meaning of that story is simple. It's uh, don't commit adultery and uh, murder your spouse's lover. Uh, sure. (laughs) Yes. Two thumbs up for that one. Um, But is that really all that these stories mean? The truth is most of us instinctively gravitate towards looking at the stories in the Bible as if they're nothing but uh, Aesop's fables. But here's the biggest problem. Jesus doesn't read these stories that way. You know, after Jesus rises from the dead in Luke 24, he appears to a couple of his disciples and he starts up a conversation about the meaning of his life. Uh, Before they ever even realize who they're actually talking to. And he sums up the conversation in chapter 24, verse 27, when he says In beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, I'm sure Jesus thought there might have a direct morality meaning to these stories, but if you dig into their ultimate meaning, they're going to reveal stories about Jesus. And so Brian and I, this entire semester, have been trying to unpack this and say that if you just read these things like they're morality tales, then then the Bible is nothing more than a behavior enforcement exercise for you. You know, like those little note cards that you put on your, your bathroom mirror or something like that. But if you begin to read them like they're ultimately about Jesus, you'll find a new power in them. In other words, if you begin to see that what's being told here is a story of what Jesus did on the cross... The Bible ceases to become a big finger wagging at you, and it becomes a place of real comfort and joy. Even little tiny snippets like the one we have this morning about David's elite fighting force, they end up being a deep encouragement and giving us some profound insight in the way in which God transforms the world. So just three points this morning we want to look at. We want to see a sighing king, a supporting band, and then a transforming sacrifice. Let's jump into that first one here. Because we want to set the stage here. We've finally come to the end of Samuel's scroll. And the author has some, some, in, included some stories that are not necessarily in chronological order. It's kind of a sort of compiling of stories here in chapter 23, where he gets to the stories about David's mighty men. Uh, historians tell us that uh, this scene probably happened after David was king, but before the whole affair mess. And these were the men who had bonded with David while he was on the run from Saul right? And they became, once he ascended to the kingship, his elite military force, his most trusted warriors. But the scene that starts in verse 13 has gotten pretty unnerving again for David. It's his old arch enemies, his rivals, the Philistines that are at it again. This time they've advanced out of that sort of southwestern uh, uh, portion of the country where they used to confine themselves into the very heart of Jewish territory, even to the point of capturing David's own hometown of Bethlehem a move that would have divided the kingdom of course in half even worse Bethlehem is only a few miles from Jerusalem so even the capital city's being threatened and where is David well he's defending the capital as much as he can but he's been run out of Jerusalem and living in a cave so it's likely that this is not just threatening for him it's also humiliating we get some indications that it's harvest time so the food supply chains throughout the kingdom was going to be threatened as well. It's safe to say that you found David at one of his most vulnerable moments in his kingship early on. Which will help you understand what, D- what David says in verse 15. Because you've got to realize David's been in the wilderness before when he was with Saul. But can you imagine that he probably looked back on those days and thought, man, I'm so glad that's over with. Now that I'm king, no more life for me in the wilderness, Right? but now he's back. He's back in the wilderness feeling threatened and probably depressed, even with his old enemies pressing in. So what does he do? He does what all of us do. He starts longing for his childhood. Look at verse 15. And David said longingly, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Keller says the first thing you need to realize about this is David is not thirsty. That's not what's going on here. Any military encampment that David would have set up would have had water somewhere very near. Nor is David looking at his men and like daring them to do something rash. Well, I wonder if anybody here is man enough to go get me some water from Bethlehem. No, what David is doing is, is he's thinking back to when life was simpler, when he was a boy. And suddenly these images of his childhood start to flood back. And he remembers that there was a well by the city gate in Bethlehem It's like, oh, if only, if only I could be back to when times were simpler. You ever felt that way? (laughs) I really do think we all have, haven't we? A couple of months ago, I found this interesting. There was a a TikTok filter that came out that would transform the faces of old people like myself into youthful teenagers. I'm not making this up. You need to go take a look at this thing. It was a phenomenal feat of technology, if not slightly disturbing because it really strangely accurately made you look like you did when you were younger. But all of the posts that I was getting about it were from people in their 40s and 50s, folks my age, right, who were completely unnerved by this whole thing. And what they were saying were things like this. They're like, yeah, this filter completely messed me up. Because what they said was, "Is like, man, yes, that's exactly what I looked like so many years ago, but I sure don't now. And all of a sudden, they kept looking up and saying things like, I realize for the first time in a vivid way, I can't go back. I'll never be young again. And it hurts. It stings. Because we all have to face this. The older that you get, the more threatening life becomes. And sometimes we're faced with our lives laid out in front of us, and we try to sum it up and make it make some sense, and it all comes back zeros. You start asking your question, yourself questions like, I mean, have I ever really done anything with my life? I mean, my marriage is rocky. My kids can't stand me. I'm in a dead-end job. Oh, man, if only I was younger. Didn't have a care in the world. You will walk through the grove, I think, on a game day, and I think you'll see this theme getting played out over and over again. Now, David's depressed. He's discouraged. But in the midst of his sighing, the good news is that someone notices his most trusted warriors, see how down he is and they make a decision to come in and help, which brings you to my second point. And that is this supporting band of warriors. Look, one thing that's gonna frustrate you when you look at this story is you oftentimes wish that the Old Testament would give you more detail than you actually get in the story. <laughs> well, verse 16 says this. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of Philistines, drew out well of the, uh, water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and carried it and brought it to David. The end. (laughs) Now look, you think to yourself, wait a minute, what am I reading here? Because this is an amazing feat that these guys just pulled off. Uh, There's one commentator I found who really walked through how cool this was. He says, look, we know for a fact that there was a garrison stationed uh, in Bethlehem, Philistine uh, garrison. That probably would have included no less than 20 men. But of course, that doesn't tell how many other men probably were already inside the city gate itself. Even further, the commentator went on to explain that the gate in Bethlehem was actually at the top of a hill. No soldier, as you know, wants to fight uphill. It's a decided disadvantage. So think about this. These three men charge a full-blown garrison. They somehow fight their way through those men. They charge uphill to the city gate facing who knows how many people there, Then they race over to the city well. One of them has to draw water into a flask, I assume, while I, I don't know, I guess the other two fought off the other Philistine defenders. And then they had to turn around and fight their way back out. It's crazy. One person brought up a point how funny it must have been for the Philistines to wonder what's going on. Who are these people? Why are they attacking? What are they doing? What are they after? Oh, water. Water? Strange. Hilarious to me. Funny to no one here. You know, and nobody in the first service laughed at all either. So that's a joke you eliminate from the sermon. What's the point? The point was this was an astoundingly dangerous act of bravery. It would have been hard for you to sort of conjure up some more daring and therefore more loving tribute to their king than these three mighty men did. What kind of love did they have for David that would have motivated that kind of service? And why? Just because he was discouraged. That's the only reason. They heard him sighing They heard his longing and they acted. Look, the mighty men see, I think the mighty men see behind what's really going on. Yes, the circumstances are bad and the circumstances are bad enough. But you know, they also recognize that probably what David is wrestling with is the promises of God. David knows he was called to be the king. He's the anointed one. And here he is on the outside, once again, looking around at the disastrous situation and everything's falling down around him. Look, you do recognize this is a huge problem in the Christian life. This is our problem. How many times have you found yourself with some kind of um, intellectual, maybe, maybe rational grasp over what the promises of God say about the security of your ultimate future? But sometimes you just feel fragile. You feel things coming apart around you. You feel tied, as it were, to your circumstances, but I want to submit to you this morning that God understands this. And oftentimes what God will do is, is he will send what we might call periodic kindnesses of his providence to remind us that he's still in charge and that things are going to be okay. I wonder if you know what I'm talking about here. Evan and I have been talking for a while now about John Newton, who is the um, uh, guy who, one of the old Puritans who wrote the text to um, Amazing Grace the great Puritan John Newton, and he's got a collection of letters there he wrote. In one of them he talks about how it is that when people go through certain times in the Christian life that God will send what he calls cordials. Now it's not a cordial like you and I know and after dinner liqueur or something like that. The old definition of the word is kind of cool. It is a comforting or pleasant tasting medicine. That's a cordial. And what Newton says is, he says every now and then, God has to send us these things because he knows how weak we are. He knows how fragile we are and how much we are tied to looking at our circumstances saying there is no way that God's promises can still be true. He knows we need comfort. But here's the hard thing about cordials. We don't always recognize them when they come. You want to know why? Because they're often disguised as simple kindnesses that come to us from the body of Christ. This is what the church, the body of Christ, is the best at, by the way. Interestingly enough, the mighty men are a wonderful example of what it is that God's people do for each other. David did not dare these men to do this. There was no command. He sighed, and they jumped. And I'm beginning to realize this is, a, this is love, this is what this is. It is absolute love. Think about this. Uh, Keller goes on to say that when you, one of the ways in which you discern a religious person from a real Christian is a religious person simply says, well, you know, look, all I want to know is what I got to do to get to heaven when I die. Uh, how do I get my prayers answered? Look, just give me the requirements. And you can tell that's just a religious person who's going through emotions. Why? Because that's just jumping through hoops. That, that's relating to God as if he's a boss. But God doesn't want to be a boss. God wants to make lovers. Don't you remember those days? Maybe it was when you were dating your spouse where you sat and daydreamed about the kind things you could do for them just because you knew they had a bad day. That's what, day, that's what these um, might have been understood. You know, it's been about 10 years ago now since my uh, father passed away and everybody was like, oh, how did you do the, the, the sermon? It was my privilege to be able to preach at my father's funeral. It's the only thing I felt like I could contribute to the helplessness of the last days of his life. But I remember that when I got up to that pulpit to preach his funeral, the very first thing that caught my eye were about six or seven rows in were my coworkers. Seven RUF area coordinators who worked with me the most vividly in those seven years I was doing that. And I'm telling you, it's, it, it, it brought me the, mo- the most substantive encouragement it could. You want to know why? Because we were all traveling for a living. I knew what it cost them, not just financially, but also just time-wise, to attend my father's funeral in Memphis. I knew what it cost them. And the costliness of that gift encouraged me. It actually, literally in that moment, built me up and brought me into something that I'm not sure I would have been capable of otherwise. And I realize it doesn't always have to be something so dramatic at the loss of a parent or something terrible like that. Um, I, I, I embarrassed her in the last service, but I'm, I'm going to do it again. But Sue Castens, a number of years ago, one of our uh, wives of one of our elders here, dear, dear lady, overheard me during Sunday school talking about my favorite candy. And I was mentioning goo-goo clusters. Goo-goo clusters are such an old man candy. If you love goo-goo clusters, you're probably my age or above. It's just a thing. My dad loved them. They're, they're round. They got chocolate, peanuts, and caramel and whatnot. And I was talking about how much I love those goo-goo clusters. Can I tell you that almost every year, at least once a year, a box of goo-goo clusters just shows up? Sometimes it's at my desk. I've been up here before and gotten into the pulpit, and there's a box of goo-goo clusters right here. I'm not making that up. Here's the funny thing. You realize it's not about the candy anymore, Right? You see, what Sue Kastens, I think, understands is that in those moments, she just wants me to be encouraged. She's just cheering me on. So she drops a little cordial, a little sign. And every single one of us has the ability to drop those things on each other. That's part of the magic. That's part of the love of what it means to be the body of Christ and to be a family to one another. I do love this idea that the king's sigh was the mighty man's command. And that's what it means to really love somebody. And what you find out, ultimately, it's not about your duty. Don't get me wrong. Duty can actually get you a certain amount of the way. I know I'm supposed to do this. Let's go ahead and do it. But the hymn writer says, but to see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child, and duty into choice. So the question is, what did Jesus do exactly that makes us see our sense of duty becoming one of choice? Well, that brings me to the third point, which is this transforming sacrifice. Look, as if you're reading the, if you're reading the story ahead of me, you'll know that there's something really incredible that happens right after the mighty men arrive. Think about this scene, right? You know, they walk up, the mighty men are, Oh, king! we brought you this water, right? Okay. Uh, we got From your hometown in Bethlehem, just like you said, here you go. And what does David do to thank them? Look at verse 16. But he would not drink of it. And he poured it out to the Lord and said, far be it from me that I should do this. Well, wait, what? <laughs> Why'd you do that? How could you pour it out? Well, it's not apparent the first time you read this, but it's pretty clear what David's doing here with a little bit of digging. Because one thing David is absolutely not doing is disrespecting the sacrifice. It's actually quite the opposite. What David did when he poured out the water was he turned these men's offering into a drink offering straight out of the old book of Leviticus. A drink offering. David turned their act of of sacrifice into an act of worship. And there's nothing that can be more transformative than this. Let me tell you why I talk about this. And I want to approach this from, from, from a different topic than you might think I'm going to, and it's simply this idea. I do realize that we live in a world that's getting less and less comfortable with the Bible and Christianity in general, at least in the West. And one of the things that concerns them the most is how often it seems that God either condones, supports, or invites violence and retribution, especially in the Old Testament. But I thought Christianity was a religion of peace, people say. I mean, how can you have all this murder and warfare and blood in the Bible and still try to claim that Christianity is a, is a religion of peace? Now look, that is a question that is beyond the scope of this sermon. But I simply want to submit to you this morning that David here begins to sow the seeds of what over time is going to blossom into an utterly unique way of dealing with the violence around us in the world. I don't think I need to demonstrate to anybody here that our culture now is becoming more violent. I don't know where you may stand on the issue of guns in America. I don't think though that it can be denied that due to mass media, we are at least exposed to more and more aggressive behavior that there's simply no way has not made us into becoming a more aggressive society. I think that's fair. But it's not just an overt acts of violence. It's also in the way in which we understand what it means to live our lives. We are cutthroats when it comes to getting our own way. I I wonder how many billionaires we have to interview when we find out how many uh, people they had to crush in opposition to them. How many conscience-violating decisions did they have to make along the way to get where they were? The truth is, we have killed people for the success that we've achieved or maybe ruin some lives. But here's the interesting thing. So did the mighty men. They literally killed in order to get David what they did, some encouragement. But this is where it gets fascinating. The way David reacts to their act begins to subvert what they did, which is fascinating. Because it is as if David is refusing to participate for once in his life, and it's rare in his life, in the worldview that would reward these men with glory and honor for their deeds. That's the trick. What does it say instead? What is David saying instead by his drink offering? What David is saying to these men is, this wasn't your doing. This was God's doing. God is the only one who really wins victory. This is not about your ego, mighty men. And so what David is teaching us to do is to see that all of my strength All of my advantage, all of my privilege and my ability are gifts. They're all gifts. I had a privilege of being born the way I was and the place I was. That's my only advantage in life. It came from God. So, what David is doing is he's saying, Look, if you succeed in life, if God gives you power, you better pour it out before Him. You've got to pour that out. You have to realize it's only a gift. Otherwise, you're going to become proud of it. And once you become proud of it, you have taken step one to becoming an oppressor yourself. You trample on others. So David said, you better pour it out. You got to pour it out. And so David instructs us in a beautiful way, once again, on the Bible's completely unique way of understanding power. It's utterly unique. Because he's coming and giving us instruction on the way in which Jesus was going to use his power. When Jesus was up on the cross, do you remember what he began to quote? He began to quote from Psalm 22 when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we know that he had that psalm in his mind as he was up on the cross. But if you go back to Psalm 22 and get to verse 14, he says at one point, I am being poured out like water. What does Jesus mean? It means that Jesus is on the cross taking on the ultimate thirst that you and I have. And by his being poured out, he's taking punishment that you and I deserved, and he's then taking his own act and he's giving it to God. Isn't that fascinating? If there was anybody who could take credit for what he was doing, it was Jesus, the Son of God, but he didn't do it. What he does is every time you see Jesus talking to the Bible, he's deflecting praise to his Father. Do you see the point? David says of these mighty men in verse 15, verse 17, shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? David was pouring out symbolic blood, but Jesus shed actual blood. Why? So that he could be poured out as a drink offering for us and therefore transform the way you and I deal with evil in the world. That's the magic. And at least gives us two things that we can apply this as I've closed this morning. There's two ways in which this changes. The first one is this. It'll help you know how to deal with praise. Praise that comes to you, that you get from other people. Look, God God has granted a lot of you amazing success. Amazing success. Some of you have done things that you you yourself never dreamed of being able to do, financially, family-wise. Maybe you've got a realm of influence that you can exercise some power over as you do. And there's a lot of people that are standing around you and rightfully so, saying congratulations for what you've done. But here's the deal. You better get used to pouring that out. Congratulations, graduates, on your accomplishment, but you better get used to pouring that out. Praise is one of those things that's very easy, that the moment that I begin to believe it very deeply, and those begin to be the morsels that I sort of put underneath my tongue and nurture over time, it can become a poison. Poison. It can become the kind of thing that actually turns us into the very people that we're trying not to be. (laughs) Keller Keller dropped a quote from one of his professors that went this way. It said, praise is a little bit like perfume. Sure, take a whiff, but you don't want to drink it in. Nothing's funny this morning. I'm going to stop even making an attempt here. so. So it gives us a way of dealing with praise. But the second thing that it gives us the ability to do is to know actually what Paul is talking about when it comes to overcoming evil. Remember Romans chapter 12, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What's he saying? Paul is saying is that only at the cross do we get the means of looking at someone who hurts me and determining that I'm not going to hurt you back. Only at the cross can we look at someone who has leapfrogged over me for a raise at work and not take my opportunity to undermine them with gossip. You want to know why? Because that turns me into an oppressor. The cycle keeps going. The evil never stops. It gets passed from past to past. But someone's got to absorb it. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you the ability to do that by building you up and showing you that I was poured out for you. It means that if someone wrongs me, I don't wallow in my bitterness, but I start through the hard work of learning how to forgive. That's the only way in which we neutralize the violence and the evil around us. And David was planting the seeds all the way back in the Old Testament. The question of how God deals with violence in the Old Testament is another sermon. But for now, do you see how God's Holy Spirit is teaching us in tiny little stories? So when it's all said and done, Jesus is our mighty man. I love this thought. Jesus is our mighty man. And what that means is he hears your sighing. Jesus hears your sighing. He hears your groaning. He knows what it's like to be you. And he took up the courage and faced the ultimate enemy, far more intimidating, by the way, than some Philistine garrison. And the reason why he did it was so he could put you and I in the place to become agents of his healing in the world. There it is. Jesus is our champion. Jesus is our mighty man. That's where all this is pointing. Let's pray then Lord Jesus, would you direct our eyes by your spirit to where this is pointing so that we can see you. We can see when your blood was spilled on the cross, when that spear went into your side and you bled on our behalf. Father, that was for us and it was to, it was to steal us. It was to create in us a center that's unaffected by the things of the world. And Father, maybe you could encourage us also to be there for one another. Because we forget these truths. We forget them as soon as we walk out the door. But sometimes we need a hug. Sometimes we need a phone call. Sometimes we need just a little bit of a note of encouragement that says, thank you. I see God at work in you. I see what's happening through you. Those little things, Father, we need those to sustain us. Would you do that? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.